But the first week that we were in, that we were in this chapter, we talked about Bible prophecy because Jesus told the religious leadership that you have lost the ability to discern the times, and because the religious leadership failed to discern the times, they misled an entire generation. And uh, there were great consequences for that. So we talked about that. Then last week we talked about faith and faith lessons and how we take those steps of faith. And, and uh, we'll certainly talk about that a whole lot more than, than, uh, than just chapter 16 because the rest of Matthew is going to deal a great deal with faith. And what does it mean to walk in faith? Well, um, next week we're going to finish chapter 16 and uh, we're going to talk about what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, what we're going to find is that our culture might say one thing, but, but Jesus says it's something very, very different. And we'll break that down so we can evaluate where we are in our walk with the Lord. So it's very important. And again, help to define who we are as a church. So each week the big challenge has been what to leave in and what to leave out because there's so much more than what we could talk about in the short time that we have. And so today we are going to look at a very important passage. Um, A passage where we would say the church at large is divided over the meaning of what this passage really has to say. And uh, so I'm going to break it down. Now as I begin today, you and I are here, by and large, we are what's called Protestants. Protestants. Now the word Protestant means protestant. We are those who protested. And uh, so uh, when, and, uh, it, it probably would be better if we called ourselves the Protestants, not the Protestants, because when you say Protestants, it's clear. When we say Protestants, I feel that we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. But the word, is, but, but the word literally is Protestant. So we are those who protested. So how did that all come about? Well, it had been kind of coming about for hundreds of years, but in the 1500s it came to a head. There were certain Catholic priests who were very educated. These were not uh, guys with no education out in the middle of nowhere. These were people who had doctors of theology from the 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 uh, you know the kind of the Ivy League schools of the day. And as they would begin to look at the Bible, for instance, there was a guy named Martin Luther from where the Lutherans come from, as uh, he was called as a doctor of theology to teach the book of Romans. As he begins to go through the book of Romans, he realizes that our church teaches this, but our Bible says this, and it's very, very different. And uh, then you have a guy named John Calvin, who was in France, also from where you get the term Calvinism and Presbyterians, they all come from, from him. Catholic priests, very educated, again began to say our church is saying this, but the Bible says this and they're not the same. Uh, In Switzerland there was a guy named Zwingli, you don't need to remember that, but uh, the same thing happened. And so what took place is that these Catholic priests saw some major issues, especially with what the Bible said and, and what the church was teaching. So they wanted to reform some of the things in the Catholic church. They didn't want to be separated from the Catholic church. They wanted to reform, uh, to fix some of the things and then move on together. Well, over time, what took place is that uh, they realized on both sides that there was no way that they can reconcile the differences. One group says this, and the other group says, but the Bible says this. And so there was a great separation. 
When I say that there was a great separation, what I'm saying is wars broke out and hundreds of thousands of people died. That's the type of separation. Which is why this is entitled today, The Great Church Split. Is that what it says on the top of your outline? So it's a whole lot bigger than, than uh, and, and so I'm going to give you kind of like the Reader's Digest version of it. So that became the Protestant Reformation. The, those who protested wanted to reform. But they couldn't, so they were called the Protestant Reformation. We would say it in English typically today as the Protestant Reformation. Does that make sense so far? So today we're going to look at one passage that has divided the church now for over 500 years. And so what I want to share today is um, why we would hold a particular position. We're teaching this today because here at Calvary we go through a book of the Bible and uh, we've been in Matthew and this is where we find ourselves today. So that's the idea. So hopefully as I share some of these things today, it will bring some light, some insight. The goal is not to bring friction or animosity, but just to say this, this is what the Bible says and here's why we've concluded certain things. So hopefully you will find this interesting. If not, you will have a great nap and we will work, we'll, we'll wake you at the end. So you go, so what's the practical application? Well, there is practical application, but even more importantly, this you want to file away under just the, that category of just stuff you just got to know. So that'll be important as, as we go through. So we're going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 16 and uh, verse 13. That's where we find ourselves today. It says, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, now when it says Caesarea Philippi, just means Caesar Philip is, is what that means, Caesarea Philippi. He was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? So Caesarea Philippi, if I could put the map up real quick just to give you some perspective as to where we are. As If you've been following in our um, study of Matthew, one of the things that we've, we've highlighted is you have down in the bottom of Israel there, you have the Dead Sea. You can see the Dead Sea at the bottom. You see the city of Jerusalem. Then you have the middle area of Israel, and you have that large area that's called Samaria. Does everybody see that? And that's where the Samaritans lived. And so Israel had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and there in the middle was this group called the Samarians. That's a story for another day, or the Samaritans. But then you go up to the northern part of Israel, and you have what's called the Sea of Galilee, which is a large freshwater lake. It's very deep, but it's, it's freshwater. It's called the Sea of Galilee. At the top of that, you have the town of Bethsaida, and uh, we've certainly talked about that town as we, we've uh, gone through. And Jesus has spent much of his time right there around the Sea of Galilee, which is very distant from where Jerusalem is, about 90 miles to the south. Well, on this occasion, Jesus leaves this area and he heads to the north. And you can see the little arrow going up to this area called Caesarea Philippi. Does everybody see that? Now, Caesarea Philippi was sort of the, the pagan um, um, central area of the day. Everything that was pagan was there in this town, Caesarea Philippi, or Caesar Philip. Lots of temples. They had a temple to Caesar. They had uh, a number of different ones. But the main temple that everybody pointed to was the temple for Pan. Now Pan was the half-man, half-goat god. As a matter of fact, before the town was called Caesarea Philippi, it was called Pania, which meant the town of Pan. And uh, so everything pagan went 
on there in, in this area. So if I could show you a picture, if you've ever been to Israel, they will always take you to where Pan was worshipped. And anybody who's ever gone to Israel has been here. So Pan uh, was worshipped in this area, the big hole in the side of the cliff. And down there in the bottom there's going to be some, some water, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But that was the entrance to where people worshipped this god Pan, who was half man, half goat. So when you got a little bit closer, and we can go to the next picture, as you walked up, you would look down inside, and there was this massive rock. Uh, the rock is much bigger than what it appears in the screen. This is actually a very, very large area. And as you look down, you'll see that there is water coming into this opening from, from both sides. So um, in this area of Pan, I want to read just a couple of paragraphs from an article, and you can get this anywhere. To the pagan mind, and we'll continue looking at that as, as we read, to the pagan mind, the cave at Caesarea Philippi created a gate to the underworld where the fertility gods lived during the winter. They committed detestable acts to worship these false gods. Caesarea Philippi's location was especially unique because it stood at the base of a cliff where spring water flowed. At one time, the water ran directly from the mouth of a cave set in the bottom of the cliff. And you can see that there. The pagans of Jesus' day commonly believed that their fertility gods lived in the underworld during the winter and returned to the earth each spring. They saw water as a symbol of the underworld and thought that their god, they thought that their gods traveled to and from that world through caves. To the pagan mind, The cave and the spring water at Caesarea Philippi created a gate to the underworld. They believed that their city was literally at the gates of the underworld or the gates of Hades. And we'll see as we travel through. In order to entice the return of their god Pan each year, the people of Caesarea Philippi engaged in horrible deeds including prostitution and sexual interaction between humans and goats. So that all took place on that rock right there. And uh, so the reason that I tell you that is, first of all, uh, those who worshipped these gods, Pan for instance, there would be a certain time of year that if you were a married couple, one of the ways that you would help to raise money for your temple is that you would go and prostitute yourself, and then the money of that would then go to the temple. Uh, word has it it was a lot more effective than putting boxes in the back of the auditorium. <laughs> However, we're going to just stick with the method that we use. I'm so glad you laughed at that. <laughs> but the, the point that I want to make is this is the place where everything that could be possibly termed pagan was going on. This is not the place that you would typically want to take a group of young, impressionable, conservative Jewish religious disciples. But this is where Jesus takes his disciples and he's going to bring about some points uh, that'll be important for us today. So far so good? Okay. So there's all of that going on there in that place, especially on that rock. And you want to keep that rock in mind as we go. Verse 13, it says, when they came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. 
And uh, some would say John the Baptist, the, the news did not travel as fast then as it does today, so not everybody had heard that John the Baptist had already been beheaded. Some had thought that John the Baptist had been reincarnated in Jesus. Others thought that Jesus was one of the other uh, prophets. And uh, interesting, they also said, some think that you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah is interesting because he was the prophet who had God's message, and um, his message was very different than the religious establishment. So he was rejected by the religious world, but he was the man that God had sent. So I'm going to read verses 15 through 20, and then we will unpack it as we go. Verse 15, um, he says, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, which means son of Jonah or son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. First mention of the word church in, uh, in any of the Gospels. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So as, as I read that, if you come from a, a Catholic background, you have been taught that Jesus spoke here very, very specifically to Peter and says, Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you loose will be loose, whatever you, you, know, you, you lock will be locked essentially. And so if you come from a Catholic background, you would hold that Jesus here confers a very special position to Peter. And as, it, as you would hold that, that Jesus is speaking to him and he gives him the keys of, of the kingdom. And so the reason that's important is because if you come from that background, this teaching then goes to say that Peter was the first pope and then there would be a number of popes that would succeed Peter after that. So if you look at a picture of the insignia or the papal insignia or the insignia of the Pope, and we'll put that on the screen, uh, the insignia of the Pope has the keys there, and the reason it has the keys there is they believe that this was speaking to Peter. Peter was given the keys, and then that becomes the insignia for the Pope. Does that make sense so far? Also, if you've ever heard somebody joke about St. Peter at the gate with the keys, uh, letting people in, meeting you at the gate of the pearly gates, it's because of this passage. If you come from a Roman Catholic background, you believe that Jesus here is speaking specifically to Peter. We'll talk about that as we go. Have I put you to sleep yet? Verse 15, he says, but he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of of the living God. Uh, Simon Peter's answer, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now we would hold that Peter here is, is uh, the spokesman for the group. He's, he's echoing what everybody else was thinking. He's just kind of the one who speaks up. And he says, you are the Christ. Now the word Christ is in Greek is Christos. It means anointed one. Uh, the Old Testament, uh, they would say Messiah, or literally Mashiach. Uh, in Hebrew, the word for Messiah is Mashiach. In Greek, they didn't have the word Messiah, they had the word Christ or Christos, and it just meant anointed one. 
And Peter turns to Jesus and he says, you are the son of the living God, the living God. And the reason for that is that the what you and I would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, for a couple of thousand years as these things were, were kind of uh, jotted down first by oral and, and then ultimately being, being written down. There were these verses that would talk about this one who would come and he would be the Son of God. We would know him as the Christ or the Messiah. So for instance, there on your outline, a thousand years before Jesus was born, uh, Psalm 2, it says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. So what he's saying is this is what God has said. So here's what God says. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. So they began to, to understand that, that when this one came, he would be the son of God. Today, he says, you've said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. That when this Messiah came, he would be literally the son of God. Ultimately, his inheritance would be everything. All the nations, the end of the earth, and, and, and everything. So Peter says to Jesus, he says, we've seen your life and we recognize that that's you. You're the Son of God. You're the Son of God. And so remember also that here in Caesarea Philippi, this is kind of like the hub of everything pagan. So there's a number of temples. So Peter tacks on, he says, you are the Son of the living God. And he says that here at Caesarea Philippi, which is his way of saying, this God is living these gods are not. They're, they're, they're demons, they're whatever, but they're not God. You, however, are the son of the living God. You know, Caesar's dead, he has a temple here, but he's dead, you're the son of the living God. So Peter understood who Jesus was. We're going to find in a few verses that although he understood who Jesus was, he didn't understand at this point what Jesus came to do. And that'll be important for our study. And he's going to try to deter Jesus from doing what it is that he was called to do. Verse 17 and 18, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So Jesus says some things here to Peter that cause our Catholic friends, and I say friends, uh, to conclude that Peter here becomes the rock upon which the church is, is built. Uh, when he says there in verse 17, he says, blessed are you, Simon, we would understand that that word blessed is the same word blessed that you'd find in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, you know, and, and that. Uh, Jesus is not conferring here a blessing on Peter. He's simply acknowledging that Peter's really been blessed. He's, he's, he's seen this. And so some will say that Peter receives a blessing here. We would say Jesus is acknowledging Peter's not receiving. He is blessed because he, he's, he, God has revealed these things. Some will say that Peter is blessed because he was the one who confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, saying that Peter's the one that got it, and uh, so because of that he gets to be the one that Jesus confers the blessing upon. But remember back in chapter 14, there's the story 
where Jesus says, get into the boat. They all get into the boat. They get halfway across. There's a big storm. Jesus comes walking in the water. Peter gets out of the water. They all get into the boat. The storm stops. Remember that great story? And uh, at the end of that, notice how they respond, the group of disciples. It says, then those who were in the boat with your pen in hand, I want you to underline the word, worshipped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. Does everybody see that? Now this is important. This is two chapters earlier. So the reason that's so important is that they had as a group the disciples already recognized who Jesus is. They've already declared him to be the Son of God. So what Peter is saying today is not anything unique. He's just the spokesman for the group because the group has already said this is, this is who you are. So you want to write this down that Peter says what the disciples have already declared. So he, he's not saying anything new. And then verse 19, it says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in, 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 uh, in heaven. So you have this binding and loosing. And so for that reason, our Catholic friends say that Peter was the one who was given the keys and so whatever he binds or looses, uh, that, that's, that, that is because he's the, the Pope. The, the challenge that we would have with that is that that's what Jesus says to all the disciples. I want you to notice there on your outline, in a couple of chapters, Matthew 18, Jesus is going to say to all the disciples, I tell you the truth that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. So here Jesus is telling all the disciples the same thing, so it does not appear that this is something that's unique for Peter. Does that make sense? So he says, Peter, you are the rock, and, and uh, upon this rock I will build my church. Um, there are, from a Protestant background, uh, there are those of us, especially Protestants, who hold that when verse 18, he says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, and we'll look at that verse in a few moments, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. As Protestants, we then look at verse 19, and it appears from verse 19 on that Jesus changes the conversation, and he's no longer speaking exclusively to Peter, he's speaking to all of the disciples, because he's just saying what he will say to all the disciples. And in verse 20, we notice something. In verse 20, it says, then he warned all the disciples, or he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, the reason this is so important is at some point he has changed speaking specifically to Peter, and in verse 20, he's now speaking to the disciples. So, where did that transition take place? Verse 20 appears to be something as Jesus has been speaking to his disciples, he then concludes that by saying, Now, I've told you this, and I want to make sure that you don't tell anybody yet that I am the Messiah. So we will talk about that in just a couple of moments. So we would hold, because what Jesus says in in verse 19 about what you bind and what you loose, he's not giving that to Peter because in other places he gives that to all the disciples. So we would say he's not empowering Peter, he's here empowering the group of disciples. And we take that because Jesus says this to all the disciples. Does that make sense so far? Okay. So let's go back to verse 18. Now in verse 18 he says, 
I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So the, the question is, is Peter, if you come from a Catholic background, uh, you've been taught that Peter is the rock upon which the church then would ultimately be built. So let, let's look at that verse there on your outline. There's a little difference in wording, which is infinitely significant. He says, I say to you that you are Peter. Now that word Peter there is the word Petros. And upon this rock, and that word rock there is Petra, I will build my church. The word church there is ecclesia. We'll come back to that word. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So when we look at this, we would look at that and says, you are Peter. The word Peter there, I put that on your outline, Petros, a primary word, a piece of rock. Uh, it, it would be a small rock. Peter, literally, Jesus would call him, if he was calling him in English, he'd call him rocky. Peter just means rock or a rocky. But it's a small rock, is the, the idea. But then he says, but upon this rock, and that word there is Petra. Well, that word there uh, on your outline is a mass of rock, a large stone. Uh, this is a stone that would be like a boulder or a foundation stone. It's a very, very different word. And so if you come from a, a, a Catholic background, you would understand this as evidence that Jesus said, I'm going to build on Peter as the stone or the rock. However, when we read it, we read it very differently. We're, we would read it where Jesus is saying, Peter, you're the small rock, and that's good. And I'm going to build my church on the big rock. We would hold that it doesn't point to Peter, it points away from Peter. Peter's the little rock, that's good. But Jesus is going to build his church on the big rock, and that's not Peter. So far so good? So we go on from there. So Peter's the, the rock, the, the little rock, but Jesus says we're going to build it on, on, on the rock. So the question then becomes, what is the big rock that Jesus is going to build his church on? Well, um, we would say it's not Peter, because Peter's the little rock, and Jesus has defined that for us. Uh, some people will say that the, 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 they, they look at different things, and, and I think all these have a great deal of truth in them. So for instance, if we can put the picture up, one of the interesting things is that when you go to the, to the, uh, the where Pan was worshipped, that little area where the water comes in and out, that was called the Gates of Hades. That'll be important for our discussion. And that large rock there uh, is, is where they performed many of their rituals that we read about in public view. So imagine the disciples are there, they look over and they see all of that going on and then Jesus has this conversation with them. Well, some people say that what Jesus is saying here is, guys, you see that rock over there and all that pagan stuff going on? What I'm going to do? I'm going to build my church right on top of that. And uh, part of that makes a lot of sense because when you think about it, for 2,000 years, Jesus has been taking some very, very pagan people and turning them into believers. And so that, that makes some sense. I don't believe that that's what he's saying, but it is very interesting that there is a large rock there. So another, uh, um, some, some would say that, that the big rock is not Peter and it's not the rock that you see there at Caesarea Philippi, but it's the confession that Peter makes. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and uh, that is the rock that Jesus is going to build his church. Well, part of that is very true when you think about it, because 
For 2,000 years, people have become believers by confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's certainly part of it, and there's a lot of truth there. But that still is not the big rock that, that Jesus is going to build his church on. So far, so good? Have I put you to sleep? Okay, if you, if you need coffee, we'll bring you some. You and, I, you and I hold to a term that we call expositional constancy. Now what that means is you take symbols in the Bible, and symbols mean the same thing. So anytime you see a dove, when it's used as a symbol or symbolically, it's always a reference to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you're not around the Bible too long before you pick that up. You read through the Bible and it refers to the dragon. Well, the dragon's always a picture of Satan or the devil. Absolutely. It's never a picture of the Holy Spirit, you know, because the symbols always remain constant. So what is the big rock that our faith is built upon? What is the big rock that the Bible points to as the big rock? Well, um, throughout the Bible, uh, this idea of the rock, the big rock, shows up. So Paul would be writing to the church in Corinth, and he talks about, you remember when the nation of Israel, and they're traveling around for 40 years, and everywhere they go, they come to this, there's a rock there, there's a rock. And Paul says, so here's what that rock means. There on your outline, it says, they all drank from the same spiritual drink. You know, the water would come out of the rock. And uh, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock. And by the way, that word there is Petra. It was a big rock. Which followed them, and the Petra, big rock, was, what was it? It was Christ. One of the things you find when you go through the Bible is that in the Bible, and you want to write that down, in the Bible, Jesus is always the big rock. Jesus is always the big rock. Which is why um, when Peter would teach on this, Peter would say it like this. Now, certainly Peter would have the opportunity to point to himself as being what the church is built upon, but notice what Peter would say. There in your outline from Peter chapter, 1 Peter 2, he says, as you come to him, the living stone, that word stone there means huge rock, it's a foundational stone, rejected by men, and, and rejected by men, chosen by God, and precious to Him. So you also, like living stones, you also are living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here Peter teaches that it's Jesus who is the big rock, and he doesn't reference himself at all for being what, what, what it is that the church is built upon. So go ahead and and write this down. Peter taught that it's all built on Jesus, the rock. He's the living stone, the massive stone. And we're little stones. We're like little Christ. That's why we're called Christians, Christians. We're like little Christ running around. So we're building up this big house. And also, just very quickly, uh, when you talk about the Reformers, one of the other issues the Reformers had, uh, let me read that verse again, and we'll go very, very fast because we're running out of time. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. And I want you to underline a holy, what's that word say? Priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the Bible, you and I are called the priests. And uh, the New Testament talks about how the priesthood ended and then you and I become part of the priesthood. And so as they looked at their Bible, they said, this isn't what the Bible says, 
but the church is saying something very, very different. You and I are priests of God is the idea. Big conversation for another day. So Jesus is the big stone, and like Peter, just like Peter, we're all the little stones in that house that's being built up. So Paul the Apostle, he would write on this, and Paul apparently has not even entering his mind that that the church would be built on on Peter. Notice how Paul says it there on your outline. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God, with God's people, and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, plural, and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the, and I want you to underline, the cornerstone, cornerstone. There's no mention here that Peter is the rock that the church is built upon. Uh, the, if there's a foundation, it's built upon the, the, the apostles collectively, but, but not just one man is the idea. So in verse 19, when it says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, Paul did not understand that to be talking about Peter, he understood that to be referring to all the apostles as the foundation. Does that make sense? So, so I think I just put you to sleep on that one. So we would read verse 18 to say something like, Peter, you are the little rock, and that's good. You're one of the stones. You're one of the stones. One of the living stones. And I think at that point, he says, you are the little rock. And Jesus then points to himself, he gestures to himself, and he says, and upon this rock, I will build my church. And then I think he points over at the temple of Pan, and he says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And, And so it appears from our understanding that he's speaking there to the rest of the disciples when he says, I will give you the keys, I will, you know, whatever you bind, whatever you loose, because he says that to all the disciples, not just to Peter. So our understanding is that in the Bible, Jesus is the big rock, not Peter. So where does that leave us? Well, when your Catholic friends come to you and you share this, that Jesus is, is the big rock, and they become angry, and they become emphatic, and they say, that's not true, Peter is the rock, and uh, you guys are wrong. You look at them very boldly. You make eye contact, and you look at them, and you say, okay, and let it go. (laughs) Because a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And so if the Holy Spirit's not, don't get into that as a battle. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay. So very, very quickly, verse 18, he says, uh, I say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. Now the word there, church, there on your outline is the word ecclesia. And in the original sense, it means uh, a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place or an assembly. Now, the reason I say that is that Jesus chose the word ecclesia. In that day, it was a completely non-religious term in order to describe his church. So go ahead and write down that Jesus called it a church, which is a non-religious term. 
Apparently Jesus chose a very non-religious term so that the church didn't become overly religious is the idea. Probably a bigger conversation than that. Now going on I think also so that we don't elevate Peter uh, too much outside. He's one of the guys, he's, he's certainly God used him very specifically, but he's not the one in our understanding that the church is built upon. And I think this is included just so we don't draw that conclusion. Verse 21 it says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed and be raised up on the third day. This is all new information to them. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. And he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Uh, Peter understands who Jesus is, but at this point he doesn't understand Jesus' mission to redeem humanity. And you notice that he feels the freedom here to tell Jesus that he's completely out of his mind. He's wrong. And so Jesus rebukes him from that. I, I think that that was put there for us so that we don't elevate Peter too much. So um, with the, the few seconds that we have left, um, I, I begin, but did you at least find that interesting today? Yeah. Okay. Because um, we can only show a movie at the second service. If it, <laughs> I began today by saying that this chapter defines who we are as a church. Why we, we point to certain things and why we don't embrace other things. Why we focus on things and we don't necessarily focus in on other things. There on your outline, Paul would say this. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good thing. It's interesting, he says that it's the God's word that makes you equipped. It's God, God's word that will make you adequate for every good work. Paul doesn't point to anything else. He takes him right back to God's word and he says that's what's inspired. God's word is inspired. So, so here at Calvary, Part of our calling in a world where the church at large is doing just about anything and everything on Sunday morning rather than just opening the Bible and saying here's what it says and here's why this is important and and going through it. We feel called to teach the Bible. We feel called to that. So when when you come to Calvary, you you know we're probably not going to say something like we're going to take the next 10 weeks, we're going to look at the major movies that are out there, we're going to tell you about the movie and then we're going to tell you how that kind of relates to God. I'm not opposed to those things, but this church is calling us to open the Bible and to go through because Paul tells us this is what grows you, this is what feeds you, this is what causes you to become adequate. So so you always get that here. And and there's a a great emphasis on that. And because we emphasize that so much, as we've shared that you know we're in this building project and that we're doing that and God continues to bring people to the church. The big challenge is we know that our primary calling is to teach the Word of God. And so we're trusting the Lord as we go forward in faith. We need everybody's participation, but we never want to take away the teaching of the Word of God to focus in on something else. Uh, That doesn't mean that God doesn't want us all to participate. It just means at this church we always open up the Bible and and we, we go through what the Bible says. Make sense? Another thing that I would want to share with you is it defines this church that Paul would write to the pastor, Timothy, and he would say, study 
to show thyself approved unto God. That word shew there is show. Uh, it's, it's old King James and it just sounds better. Study to shew or like show thyself approved to God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And then it says rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. But if you rightly divide it, that is, you go to it, you find out what the Bible says about itself, you look at what's going on in the culture, where this is going on, what else does the Bible say, you come to the place where you rightly divide. Our world is filled with people who stand up with a verse and they make it say some, at times some very ridiculous things. Uh, here at Calvary we seek to rightly divide the Word of God. And that's with God's Spirit studying to, to come together and to make sure that we're accurately presenting God's Word to God's people. That's, that's a real priority here at, at Calvary. But having said that, a verse that you want to become very, very familiar with. It was said that there on your outline in the book of Acts they were traveling through going to church to church, Paul was, And one of the comments that they made, they said, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, who were great people, by the way. For they received the message with great eagerness, and I want you to underline this, examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They wanted to rightly divide the word of truth. They began with the assumption that the scriptures were true, So when Paul taught something, they went back and examined the Bible to make sure that what Paul was saying was really true. The reason that verse is so important is that verse tells you, never believe anything that Dan Plurd tells you. (laughs) You go back to the Bible and you examine the scriptures to make sure that what I am teaching you is truth. You see, when you don't rightly divide the Word of God and you don't examine, you can have a teaching that could be a teaching that is an error. And that teaching can last for 2,000 years because people don't go back to the Bible to examine that to see if what's being said is actually true. So here at Calvary, the, the goal is to always go back to make sure but you examine and you make sure that the things that are being taught are truth. And with that, we are going to close in prayer. Did you find that at least interesting today? Good, okay. And again, the idea is not to create friction, but to share some perspective. And here's why we line up the way that we do. And uh, there's you know, great grace and friendship and all that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we as a church go forward, we realize that we have a unique calling You've called us to open your word, to go through your word, to study, to rightly divide, to examine the scriptures, to evaluate everything against what it is that that you have said to make sure that we are on track with, with what it is that you've actually said. Lord, we want to be the people of God that you've called us to be. We want to represent you well in all things. And, and so, Father, we pray that as we go forward, that we would be a light shining in what can be a very dark place and that you would use what it is that you're doing in our lives and us as a church to be something that you could use to draw people to yourself. Lord, give us great wisdom and understanding and effectiveness in this year. Keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.